Hey, uh, welcome to the Life of Christ, week five. Hey, I uh, hope you guys, uh, I, I heard, I mean, I was out of the country last week, but I heard it was like raining like crazy on uh, Thursday, or at least it was supposed to. So hopefully you guys made it um, last week. Um, I heard that Derek did a really good job. I'm grateful that he filled in uh, for me and uh, covered the message of Jesus. I really, I told him when I kind of passed the, the buck to him, I was like, man, I, of all the weeks that I did not want to miss, like that was, I mean, you never want to miss like, it's, it's like, hey, which, which, which week of Jesus's life do you want to miss, you know? So it's like none of them, but uh, it's just the way it worked out, and I'm really glad that he was able to fill in. He's, he's more than capable. So tonight we're going to cover um, the uh, betrayal, trial, and crucifixion of Jesus. And then, and then next week we'll finish the class off um, by talking about uh, the resurrection and the commission of Jesus. So two weeks left tonight and next week. Um, thanks for hanging in. These classes typically are like this, although the attrition rate in this class has been uh, not as, as uh, uh, steep as ones in the past. So grateful for you guys to not only start, but to hang in and, and uh, finish the class. Um, anybody, I, I ask this every week just because I'm curious, but it, it, is this anybody's first night in here? Anybody? Raise your hand. Okay, good. Um, so let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll jump right in. We've got a lot to cover tonight. Well, Jesus, as any time we start to talk about uh, what we're going to talk about tonight, um, I just feel really, I feel really small. I feel really insufficient um, to talk about this topic, because I know that it's real, that it, um, that it happened in history, and um, what I don't know is the depth of the significance of what it meant that you died, and so we all come with humility tonight to, uh, to this story, um, to the reality of the historicity of this story and the reality of how it affects everybody's life. And so I just pray that you would show us mercy and grace that you would come and teach um, as you always do. We recognize that you are the teacher and so we just pray that you would use this night to exalt your name, glorify yourself, Invite us into deeper discipleship with you and teach us in, in more meaningful ways um, the way of the cross. And so we pray these things in your name by the power of the Spirit. Amen. All right, well, let's start tonight with about uh, 10 minutes or so. Let's go to about 7.15. It's 11 minutes. Man, gave you guys an extra minute uh, if I'll shut up. <laughs> um, let's go to about 7.15. So... Um, for for the first question tonight at your table, just um, I thought it was really interesting. How many of you guys have been reading Yancey's book? Raise your hand, um, Philip Yancey's book. Okay, pretty good amount of people. Great. 
Um, so, so this week's reading was chapter 10. Um, it was only one chapter. So of all the weeks that you should have read Yancey, it was this one. <laughs> um, but I thought it was really interesting. And, and he kind of wrestled with this um, tension. And I, um, I thought it was good to wrestle with it. But just what do you think? Like if Jesus came in similar form today, like if, if, if we were the context that God decided to enter into history in the form of a man, um, to become a man, to, to become like us, how do you think we would respond? So do you think the church and the government would see Jesus as a threat the way that the church and the government of Jesus' day saw him as a threat? And, and why, do you, why do you think that? Why or why not? Um, uh, and wrestle with that at your table and then here in about 10 minutes, now nine minutes, dang. Um, here in about nine minutes, we'll come back together and, and chat about it. All right. What'd you guys think? I mean, um, I know his question was asked, hey, like, this, he's, he's coming for the first time, right? And I said, yes, um, just like he did the first time. Um, what'd you guys think? Anybody feel like sharing, sharing what your table discussed? We have, yeah, Brian, would you mind? Yeah, grab that one. And then, Bob, will you grab this other one? Or whatever one. Anybody want to share kind of what y'all's conversation at your table look like? Come on, people. We're friends now. Let's go. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, you might have to flip it on. Wait till the light's green. This isn't a complete conclusion. We were just talking about how interesting it would be to see, not that it would be fun, but what would the world look like right now if... Jesus had not come yet because our nation would look very different. So our mindset of how would everybody take his message now, Mm. we're not really even thinking from the mindset we would be in if he were coming for the first time. So it's interesting just to think about what the world would be like right now if he had not come yet. Yep. So. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I think think in some ways, I mean, obviously with, with the advances that we've made, in technology and and uh, you know as a civilization, um, yeah, that's interesting. I think uh, my my first thought is um, uh, when I read the Gospels, um, there are definitely differences. But the thing I'm struck by is how similar um, their responses are were to us today, and, and I think it underscores the fact that. No matter how much time passes, the human condition is always the same. And, and so one of the things I'm, I've always been really convicted about and is kind of scary to think about um, is uh, a lot of times we, when, we, when we read the Gospels and, and the, the Pharisees are read in such a negative light that a lot of times we mentally project on them like, oh, they're the enemy, they're the enemy, they're the enemy. And a lot of times I'm like, yeah, but that's kind of the group I would have fit in, you know. And so just like we've tried to do this whole class, like placing ourselves into the story, um, I think is a really powerful um, tool to, to consider. But no, it's a great point. It's a great point. Anybody else? <clears throat> Nobody had any thoughts. Like when I said, y'all go ahead and talk, y'all just kind of like, hey, what's up? It's nicer, nicer weather this week. <laughs> uh, she's got her hand up back there. Brian, will you take the mic back there? Go ahead. Go ahead, Bob. What's your name? Uh, it's, it's Bob, too. Hey, so, Bob. 
Oh, we, we were sitting here wondering because uh, we were about the current news event about Donald Trump uh, getting the uh, nomination. Mm-hmm. Basically, he's going to be the re- Republican uh, a candidate for president, but it's interesting for the first time that the Bushes and uh, several other people are, are really not coming out. They're sort of staying from the election. So, you know, there may be something there. And uh, uh, because here's a, here's a man that's being voted in, and, and here is, uh, you know, the political community that's been there is rejecting him, even though he's, you know, winning elections. So there's... Yep. You know, there's some message there that uh, some similarity of, of uh, like what the lady was talking about over there is an expectation, but then a, a little different action taking place here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so what I don't want to say is that Donald Trump is Jesus. That's, that's what I don't want to say. So let's be real clear about that. <laughs> But I, I take the point as far as a, an establishment pushing out someone who would seem to be very similar to to them. Yeah, it's a good point. Um, What's it your was name? just echoing your sentiments um, from earlier. What we were discussing was that we felt like it would kind of be the same, um, which is a little bit depressing. Mm. Um, that we, at our core, like we've advanced in terms of technology and how we communicate and in that, that aspect, but in our core and like our character as a people that we feel like we're the same. And kind of the example that we gave was, you know, like even when the Israelites wandered for 40 years and he told them when to sit, when to stand, when to breathe, he gave them exactly how much they needed mm-hmm. to eat every day. And they still doubted him and still had um, trust issues and it's so easy for us to read that and be like those, you know, ungrateful Israelites and like, why are you guys doing that? But then turn around and it's like you look back over the course of your life and there it's really hard to deny the hand of Christ and, and sort of God working in and through your life. And you still probably woke up today um, contradicting that belief in, in some way, shape or form. And so we honestly kind of felt like we wouldn't react much differently than what we've read in sort of the book of life. And um, something that Marcio said was uh, the biggest concern that he had was, are we missing the point? You know, um, when we read everything and we're coming to these classes, like, are we missing the main point so much so that like when he does return, we are still in the same exact place. Mm, Yeah. 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 No, it's, those are, those are good things to think about. Um, one one of the weights that I consistently carry around with me anyway is a hopefully it's a healthy maybe sometimes an unhealthy but I think we should all have a healthy distrust of ourselves um, and and not to not to the point where it becomes like unhealthy and like nihilistic where like oh, I can't believe anything that I, I I can't believe anything at all but I, but I do think there, there needs to be a healthy, like, consistent challenge of our lens that we view the world through um, to, to consistently ask ourselves, okay, Lord, am I looking at this the way that you do? Because like Derek said last week, or at least he should have, and if he didn't, then, um, yeah, I got something for him. <laughs> but no, he, he did. Like Derek said last week, the whole, the whole message of Jesus was about the upside-down nature of the kingdom. Like... The, the thing that should strike us on a consistent basis is, is kind of that moment, those aha moments where you're like, yeah, I'm, fly, I'm flying right, you know, and then all of a sudden you realize, wait a second, I'm upside down, you know, um, where you, you see everything and you're like, wait a second, 
um, maybe I'm the one who's looking at this um, wrongly. And, and so, I, guys, I just, I mean, I, I think that when Jesus, and we'll look at some stuff tonight. Um, guys, y'all, y'all can sit down. We'll, we'll press on. But we'll look at some stuff tonight for sure where Jesus reinforces that upside-down nature. And I'm just telling you, like, um, Jesus is the one who's right side up, <laughs> and we're upside down. And, and a lot of times, even when we think we're right side up, we're still upside down because of the nature of sin and how, and how deeply rooted it is in all of us. Um, again, I'm not saying that, that we could never grow and that the Spirit could never transform us because that's the very heart of the gospel. Right? It's not only that you can be forgiven, but that you can be made a new type of person, a type of person who fits into the right side up nature of the kingdom. But... As anybody knows who's walked for five minutes with Jesus, that is hard to do. And it's not hard to do because the yoke that Jesus places on us is heavy, right? It's because the sin that's in us is heavy. Um, and, and so as we begin to walk, we're going to think like, wait a second. Jesus is actually like um, the, the parts of me that, that functionally I love the most. Jesus is killing that stuff. Right? And, and you also realize that, that as he's killing it, there's part of you that's like, okay, yeah, Lord, I trust you. I surrender that to you. But there's also another part of you that's like, wait a second, not that. <laughs> you know, When I got married um, back in 2009, which was, golly, seven years ago, when I got, um, with some of y'all have been married like 40 years, like, you're a spring chicken, you know, um, I defer. <clears throat> but when, when I got married, um, my, my wife obviously moved into our little apartment in Columbus, Georgia. We didn't know anybody, but um, I, I remember I set up like my little office space and I had it exactly the way I wanted it. And then I went on like a week-long training exercise. I was in the army. And when I got home, my office space didn't look like it did when I set it up, you know. And I knew that she was going to move in, but I didn't know she was going to move all the way in. You know what I'm saying? Where I was like, dude, that was like my one spot. And you went in there and totally changed it. Like the only thing that's the same is the computers on the desk, you know? And I was like, uh, and it's kind of like that. Like he, a lot of times we want Jesus to move in, but we don't, want him, we don't want him to move all the way in. You know what I'm saying? And yet um, those, are those, those are the parts of our lives that are still upside down. Where it's like, uh, and you just have to recognize like, that's the lens that you read all of life through. That's the lens that, that we read the Gospels through. And so um, a, a huge part of um, getting over that or getting, uh, reading the lens through a, reading through a clear lens is just to recognize that your lens is tainted. That you need, when you come to the text, when you come to Christ, just the acknowledgement of Jesus, in, in order for me to even follow you rightly, I have to, you have to help me. I, I can't like come to you and then you help me. It's, it's like in order for me to even come to you, I need your help. So, and that's the nature of, of the kingdom. So in case anybody's confused about this, let's, let's look and we'll start tonight in John chapter 13. I'm going to read this. It's kind of long. It's 17 verses, but it's important. <laughs> As if, you know, any other part's not important, but... Y'all open your Bibles with me to John chapter 13. It was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. 
Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God, and that he was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you don't, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. And Peter said, no, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus said, unless I wash you, you don't have any part with me. Simon Peter replied, then Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. That was, he was making a reference to a Jewish practice of these, they call them these mikvah baths, where you would ritualistically cleanse yourself. Jesus, and Peter was saying, don't just wash my feet, like ritually cleanse me. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet, his whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew he was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, because that's who I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Again, so Jesus had said this multiple times in the the passages where he says, hey, the Gentiles uh, take authority and they lord it over people. And Jesus, uh, what he's doing, like I said, is is he's inverting this kingdom to where he's saying, no, but it's not so among you. Because the the one among you who's the greatest, that's the one who's going to wash everybody's feet like I do. So like you guys know, or most of you probably know, I was in Haiti last week. And uh, it was a really interesting time. Uh, Haiti is, uh, has only been around for about 200 years. It has a, it has a really rough history. But <clears throat> when, when Columbus landed on Hispaniola, which is the, the whole island, Haiti and the Dominican Republic, and when he landed on there, obviously he brought with him Roman Catholicism. And so Roman Catholicism took seed in, in Hispaniola, but it also uh, mixed with a lot of the mysticism type beliefs that they already held. And so Haitian religious belief is kind of this weird mix of Roman Catholicism and voodoo, right? So um, as we were training, we were training about 200 pastors. And a lot of these pastors uh, are, are uh, not as educated as they should be. So they have, they have a little bit of education, but not near, like they're still susceptible to a lot of false teaching. So we were trying to correct some of that and engage them and love on them and be their friend. And, but what I consistently saw was um, from them was this idea of, hey, I'm, as a pastor, I, I hold the office of a priest. And so I hold the office of someone who's important. I carry authority with me. People defer to me. Um, there, was, there was a lot of posturing going on. So when we did Q&A time with them, they would come up and like preach a little sermonette because they, what they were trying to do was posture in front of all the other pastors to show them, hey, I know what I'm talking about. Y'all need to respect me. You need to give me, you know, uh, what I deserve, that sort of thing. 
And, and even when they would ask us questions, it seemed like there was conflict among them because one of them would stand up and say, hey, I know I'm called by God to be a pastor, but if another guy, hint, hint, that dude over there, is not called by God and we're in conflict with one another, which one of us wins? Like, that was his question. And so, which, I, I mean, I was trying to be gentle, all right? But at one point, um, I think I was gen- hopefully gentle, but maybe not. And, and I just said, hey, guys, like, um, if you're jockeying for position as a pastor, then that's not Jesus, right? That's something else, but it's not Jesus. And I pointed to this passage. I pointed to a couple of other passages where I just said, look, um, the, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the one in that situation who humbles himself in front of the other one, that's the one who's acting like Jesus, and you could just feel the air like left the room because it was such a foreign concept. And, and, and then as I'm looking at them, I'm like, yeah, but if, I mean, if you, I guarantee you, if you put uh, kind of the top 10 mega church pastors in the United States into the same room and told them they needed to humble themselves in front of one another, that probably would not go very well. I'm just being honest, right? There's a lot of ego there. And so while I'm, while I'm looking at these guys, I'm also doing exactly what I said to you earlier. I'm like, this is a human problem. That's not a Haitian problem. That's not an American problem. That's not a European problem. It's not an African problem. That's a human problem. We all want, we, we all would, we need to put ourselves into this shoes of, uh, you know, James and John who on the way to Jerusalem where Jesus is going to die, he just told them he was going to die. And they were like, hey, um, which one of us is going to be the greatest one in your kingdom? Right? And it, you, you got to know, like, Jesus is sitting there. He's either like, you know, oi vey, you know. <laughs> or he's scratching his head and he's looking at him like, really? Like, I just said I was going to die. And you want to know um, which one is going to be ranked above the other one? And so uh, just the uh, underscoring the upside down nature of the kingdom, and you have to understand this because I think what you see ultimately going on and what's going to be uh, driven home tonight is that, is that the, what we think is the right side up, what we think is, is going after uh, uh, position, status, power, security, all of those things, um, actually what's what's pitted against itself is not Jesus versus the political authorities. It's Jesus versus Satan. Right? What, what we think is the right side up nature of the way things are is satanic. I, I, I mean, I don't... I, I think it's really clear... Um, as we as we'll continue to go tonight that i mean jesus very much viewed himself not as someone who was being subjected by the ruling authority of the day but as someone who was going to war with the real enemy the one who was controlling the political authority of the day and and so um, we we just need to be as we consider the nature of the kingdom i mean in every situation in 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 the day in and the day out, and the way we interact with one another, and the way we interact with our spouse and our kids and our friends and our community and the people at work and all that kind of stuff. The, the greatest among you will be the servant of all. And, and that's just the way it is. Definitely, Jesus is not just 
teaching this. Like he said, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right because that's who I am. But I'm not just teaching it to you. I'm showing it to you. This is the nature of the kingdom. And so as, like, like Paul says in Philippians, um, our citizenship um, is, is in another kingdom. And so while we are um, exiles, foreigners, um, you know, displaced people, on, on this world, it's our job to image the kingdom of God to a world that is, in, in, in reality, totally upside down. And that's what Jesus has called us to do. He has given us an, an example for us to follow. So he takes this meal with his disciples. Um, the, the triumphal entry has already happened. I don't have time to, to touch on all this. I know Yancey talked about it some in his book. But the triumphal entry has already happened. And, and it, just to touch on it briefly... When he comes in, Jesus doesn't come in riding a white stallion with a bunch of captives behind him. Right? That's typically what Rome would do when it would conquer a people. It would bring back the most prominent people in a procession where the Rome would cheer and the, and the Caesar or the generals would ride in on a, on a prominent horse and the captives that they had captured would be behind them to just show the, the loot and the spoil of war. And yet here you have Jesus who's riding probably like uh, barely hanging on to this donkey riding into Jerusalem. He's coming as um, a humble servant. And, and the people are shouting out, Hosanna, um, save us. They're, they're recognizing um, that there's something unique about Jesus. And yet, as we've talked about throughout this whole class, their expectation for him was totally off. I mean, they, they expected him to come in as someone who would, uh, he obviously had worked miracles, he obviously had garnered support of the people, and, and yet when, when he came in, their expectation was, hey, come into Jerusalem so you can drive out the oppressors. I'm getting all the way back to week one, right? The, the Psalm of Solomon, chapter 17, right? Just like, you're, you're the one who bashes the Gentiles' heads against the rocks, right? This was their expectation. Drive them out, be a military commander. Um, push them out. And yet what Jesus does is he teaches in the temple. The only people he drives out are the money changers in the temple. <laughs> you know? And so he's, he's pushing them out. He's, he's further deepening the divide where, that the religious authorities and even um, becoming somewhat of a threat to Rome by his uh, circulating claim that he was a king. And so he takes this meal with his disciples and then he begins to move. You guys, I think uh, I'd asked this question already, but if you've been to Jerusalem before, then um, Jesus would have passed through the temple on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane. If you're on the Temple Mount or if you're over by the, the East Gate, um, then uh, there's, there's a pretty steep valley called the Kidron Valley right there. And, and it's kind of like, uh, I guess mentally, to give you a picture, it's like, it's like uh, walking down flag. You guys know where Flagpole Hill is, right on Northwest Highway. It's kind of like walking down Flagpole Hill and then crossing the highway and then going back up another Flagpole Hill. It's kind of, kind of like that, distance-wise. So Jesus crosses over the Kidron Valley and then they go into this garden, um, the Garden of Gethsemane, and it's there that, it's there that Jesus um, b- begins to pray and. It's, it's interesting because Jesus makes a request when he, uh, he tells his disciples, hey, come with me, pray with me. 
And they do, but they fall asleep. And, and who can blame them? I mean, they said a huge meal and, and probably drank a lot of wine. I mean, I'd, I'd be tired too. And you got to remember too, they had, there was, you have to understand, like there was no concept that anything like what was about to happen, they, they had no idea what, what was about to go down. When Judas left, the, the last, when Judas left the Passover meal, when he got up and left, the text doesn't say anything about anybody being shocked by this. Nobody tried to stop him. It seemed to be very mundane that Judas got it. We don't know why. I mean, maybe he had an errand to run or they were thinking like maybe he had to go pay someone. I don't, who knows? But he leaves and everybody's like, okay. Um, that, I don't think anybody had any kind of concept uh, about what was, what was going to happen. But turn with me to Mark chapter 14. Starting in verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus says, said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. Verse 34, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if, that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Let's stop there. Because a lot of times um, it's difficult for us knowing what happens next in the story and knowing what ultimately plays out. Sometimes it's hard for us to really grasp the weight of what's going on here, right? Um, and a lot of times we, we also, we, we read the Gospels through our 21st century Christianized, you know, Americanized lens where we're like, well, Jesus is God. I mean, of course, like he knew everything was going to be cool. He knew he was going to die and then he was going to come back to life, you know? And yet what we see actually in the Gospels is that Jesus goes to Gethsemane and is so troubled and so anxious and so depressed, he wants to die. Right? He, he says, my soul is troubled, what? To the point of death. I mean, and, and then the next thing that comes out of his mouth, and I would underscore the reality of this. This is a real request that Jesus is making to his father. He does not want to die. Right? I mean, he, he, he prays it multiple times. <laughs> He, he says, I know the hour has come, but I don't want to go through this hour. Right. Um, he, he is, um, he's, he's asking his father that if there is another way, let's do it that way. Because this is not good from Jesus' perspective. And yet, what you see is, um, what you see in the very next sentence in verse 36 is, yet not what I will, but what you will. He returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? I mean, look, there's, um, you got to understand, like this whole concept of like Jesus being like Mr. Nice Guy and like, Simon, could you not watch for one hour? You know, there's an edge to this, 
You know what I'm saying? I mean, Jesus, we already know he's distressed to the point of death. And we already know he's begging his father to take the cup away from him. I guarantee you when he goes back to his disciples and finds those slackers sleeping on the ground, there's a little bit of an edge to his sentence to them or to his statement to them. Peter, seriously, man, could you not stay awake for one hour? Pray with me, right? Come on, please, please help me. I mean, if you knew you were going to die, I guarantee you, you would want your friends around you, right? And yet they're asleep. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, the body is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. He didn't know what to say to them. Returning the third time, he said, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! Right? Now, Mark says it. John underscores this in his gospel And I want to make the point here because especially in John's gospel, what you see throughout is is starting at the wedding at Cana um, where Jesus turns water into wine. In John's gospel, the people come to him and and, uh, actually his mother comes to him and says, hey, Jesus, they ran out of all the good wine. Well, she knows something, (laughs) right? She gave birth to to this man and then she's also raised him and has seen him. She knows something that everybody else doesn't know, right? So she's like, hey, they ran out of all the good wine. And, and she literally just tells the servants in the John passage, she's like, hey, whatever he tells you to do, just do it, right? And it's going to turn out well for you. And so they do, and the best wine is served at the end of the party, right? Which is normally reserved for the worst wine because everybody's drunk and nobody cares, <laughs> right? It's just like um, toward the end of the party, it's like, man, just give them whatever. They'll drink it. They're wasted. So the, the guy comes to him and is like, hey, you saved the best wine until the end. And, and Jesus tells his mother there for the first time, and then it's repeated throughout the gospel. He says, hey, don't trouble me with this. My what? My hour has not yet come. Right? I, I think that uh, Yancey does a good job in, in chapter 10 of the Jesus I Never Knew talking about this. It's, it's really, I, I really do think the gospels really do read and play out like um, the passion narrative. And then some of the uh, prologue, or the introduction to the Passion Narrative. In some Gospels, it's longer than others. But the Gospels really are about the Passion of Jesus, this last um, moment of Jesus' life. And so um, it's, it's, it's interesting because in John's Gospel, he says it in chapter 12, and then again in chapter 17, and he says it in Mark right here, where, where he says, um, okay, uh, all the way throughout the Gospels, my hour's not yet here, my hour's not yet here, my hour's not yet here. There's this anticipation and build up to this. And then finally, Jesus says, the hour has come, right? It's here, it's now. The battle is beginning, right? There, this is dramatic, people. This is, this is the climax of the story. We've finally come to the point where Jesus is facing the real enemy and the battle is beginning. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. Um, in fact, here comes my betrayer. Look. Got him N.T. Wright. I'm going to quote him a couple of times tonight. But N.T. Wright uh, has, has probably written the three-volume work on the life of Jesus. That, like, if, if one, if you have, like, a ton of time and you want to read, like, 1,500 pages, <laughs> then get this three-volume work because it's awesome. 
Um, the first one is called uh, the New Testament and the people of God. It gives a lot of background, like, like I mean, way more than I gave you um, on week one. But it gives you a lot of background and context to build, uh, uh, to build up to the life of Jesus. The second volume is called Jesus and the Victory of God. Um, and, and that uh, it deals with a lot of the life of Jesus leading up to the crucifixion. And then the third volume is uh, the resurrection of the Son of God, which obviously deals with the resurrection. And, and it's like the resurrection of the Son of God is like 600 pages on the resurrection. You know? So it's awesome. Buy it. Read it um, if you have a year. Um, but um, N.T. Wright said this. Um, he, he says, after, after uh, walking through and, and understanding in Jesus' concept of what was going on, again, Jesus was, he was not born into this situation in a vacuum. He wasn't born in, he didn't, he didn't walk into this without any context around it. Right? There was a ton of context about, about creation, about the people of God, about God revealing himself to his people for a very specific purpose. Um, there was uh, all kinds of, of prophecies written about this one who was to come, who was going to set Israel right, who was going to um, uh, redeem the people of God, who was going to set people free from, from the bondage of slavery. It's just that prior to this, the bonds of slavery was Egypt and Assyria and Babylon Right? and Persia, and Greece, and Rome. And yet, the entire time, what Jesus is looking past is all of these world powers. He's looking past those guys to the real enemy who was manipulating all of this all along. Right? Which underscores Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, where Paul says, Our battle's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and principalities and powers, and, and, and the, the world forces of this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Right? Now, some of you, I might lose some of you guys here, right? Because some of y'all are going to be like, all right, this just got wicked weird, right? Um, but the, uh, there have been multiple physicists. Um, in fact, I don't know of any... Now, let me disclaimer. I'm not a physicist, right? I'm a theologian. <laughs> um, and, and not even a great theologian at that, right? <laughs> but there are physicists, of, 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 I have read, who say to even describe what we know about the atom, which is like the basic building block of life, right? To even describe what's going on on the atomic level, you need at least seven dimensions. Seven. Seven. How many do we live in? Anybody know? Three. Four, right? Height, width, depth, and time, right? And, and these physicists are saying, look, there are dimensions. In order for, in order for the atom to even make sense to us, um, we, need more, we need more dimensions than we can see, right? And, and Lewis's argument, if you read the, if you read the miracles uh, paper that I gave to you guys a couple of weeks ago, he talks about this. Where he said, look, it's, it's, not that, it's not that only three or four dimensions are happening right now. There could be infinite levels of, of dimensions that are going on right now. But in our subjected state as sinners living in a sinful world, uh, living in a creation that's been subjected by sin, we can only experience a fraction of what's actually going on right now. Right? Which that'll blow your mind. 
You know, you're driving home and you're like, what the heck? <laughs> what, what am I? I mean, and frankly, it freaks me out sometimes. I'm like, what am I not seeing right now? You know? And, and yet I think um, it, it, to, to, uh, for Scripture at all to make sense, um, I think we see this in, in, the, in the physical universe, this reality that there's way more going on that we can see, taste, hear, touch, feel, right? And, and I think Jesus, who um, however many infinite dimensions that there are, or, or however many there are, dimensions upon dimensions, Jesus has an awareness of this. And so while, while he is being subjected to people in the three to, three to four dimensional world, um, to him it's like, hey, that's just a fraction of what's actually happening right now. And I'm not going to... I'm not going to try to jockey for position and manipulate this situation so I can save my life on this level when there's so much more going on on these higher levels that we just have no awareness of. Are you guys tracking with me? Okay. And so um, Jesus, when, when he comes to uh, his betrayal, when he comes to his trial, which we'll get to in a second, he's coming to it with that awareness. He has the wherewithal to look past um, the immediate threat to the ultimate threat. Um, and N.T. Wright says this in uh, Jesus and the Victory of God. The climax of the story of the battle for the kingdom, because you've got to remember, um, the temptation of Jesus is by Satan, and Satan's temptation to Jesus is, hey, if you just bow down and worship me, if you, if you just subject yourself, then I will give you a different kind of kingdom. Right? All of this can be yours. If I, I will give you a different kind of kingdom if you will just bow down and worship me. Right? What Satan was offering him was a kingdom. It was a kingdom without the cross. But, but the kingdom without the cross is, is not the kingdom. So he's offering him, it's, it's, a, it's a false kingdom. It's a bait and switch. Right? Now, obviously, Jesus didn't take the bait because he's like, you know, he answers him like he did. You know, you've heard that it was written, um, man should not live on bread alone. You will worship the Lord and serve him only. And, and so the battle for the kingdom that's going on um, was therefore inescapably that Jesus would die. Not as an accident, not as a, not as a bizarre quasi-suicide or a manipulated martyrdom, but as the inevitable result of his kingdom inaugurating career. But this death, as Jesus conceived it, would actually be the victory of the kingdom by which the enemy of the people would finally and totally be defeated. That's what's going on here. And so, as... as um, and, and it's clear in all of the Gospels that, that Satan himself had entered into Judas and was manipulating Judas in order to bring about what, what in Satan's mind was the defeat of the Son of Man. This is an epic story. <laughs> you know? Like it, and, and what's crazy is when you look at movies and movies have like um, great storylines, what you find in all great storylines is the Gospel. Right? Um, you, find, uh, you find betrayal. You find um, uh, fallenness. 
You find some sort of conflict. You find a battle for this conflict. You find redemption. You find renewal. That's the gospel, right? And that's what's going on here. So Judas comes. um, And I find it interesting, Jesus' interaction with Judas when when this happens, because um, he he kisses him on a cheek and, and Jesus calls him friend, you know? And I, I don't know if that had an edge to it. It may have, <laughs> you know, friend. <clears throat> but um, Yancey's take on it was, hey, I, I mean, Yancey's take on it was Jesus' was like, compassion, friend, friend. Um, and and, and I, I think there's a lot to be said for that. Um, because, um, even, because Judas is not the only one who betrays him, right? Judas betrays him. And then Jesus goes um, before the Sanhedrin first, this, this night trial, which we'll talk about in a second, which is illegal in every capacity. Um, and, um, and his closest disciple, Peter, denies him three times. Same betrayal. And, uh, and what, what Judas was not able to understand was um, ultimately the offer of the kingdom, not because of what um, he's done, but in spite of what he's done. And, and the offer to the kingdom, the offer of the kingdom is the same to us. We're traitors. We've betrayed. Right? And, and it's, it's, the, it's the capacity for us to humble ourselves and, um, and seek the mercy and the forgiveness of God, which is freely given um, in John chapter 1, verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become sons of God. So Jesus goes, is betrayed by Judas, is arrested. There's a lot to be said there, but I don't have time. And he goes and stands before the Sanhedrin. And, and this is, as I mentioned, is totally unjust. Um, there's false accusation. It was illegal. So here's a couple of background passages just to help us understand the way this would have happened. So the Mishnah is, uh, the Mishnah is, is part of the, the Talmud, which is the broader body of Jewish writings. And um, the, there's various different kinds of Mishnahs, but there's one of them that's a legal one um, that, that governs the legality of how the Sanhedrin functions, and that's the Mishnah Sanhedrin. So in, in the Sanhedrin Mishnah, um, <coughs> excuse me, it says this, in property cases, they try the case by day and complete it by night. In capital cases, which capital case is one that, that uh, requires death, then they try the case by day and complete it by day. In property cases, they come to a final decision on the same day, whether it is for acquittal or conviction. In capital cases, they come to a final decision for acquittal on the same day. So if the guy's innocent, they're like, you're innocent, you can go. But on the, but on the following day for conviction, so hey, you're guilty, but we're going to sleep on this and then declare you guilty tomorrow. Therefore, they do not judge capital cases either on the eve of the Sabbath or on the eve of a festival, right? And all of this is happening on the eve of a festival, right? It's Passover. So um, they're, they're saying, obviously, capital cases, you have to try them during the day, and then if someone's guilty, you have to wait until the next day to declare them guilty and then sentence them to, to obviously, to death. And all of Jesus' trial happened very quickly, and it all happened in the middle of the night while everybody was asleep. Right? And it was on the eve of a festival. 
Then the high priest, this is a, um, I'm sorry. Yeah, so this is what actually happens. This is Matthew 26, verses 62 to 66. This is what actually happens at the trial. And you've got to remember, the, as these guys um, stand up, the, the, the gospel accounts say that multiple witnesses come and tell uh, the, the council, hey, we heard Jesus say this, we heard Jesus say that. And frankly, I, loved, I love what Yancey said in, uh, in, in his book, uh, in chapter 10, where he said, because uh, one of the claims they made about Jesus, who said, um, I'll destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days, right? And so this was one of the, the charges they had against Jesus, which you and I are like, oh, okay, whatever. I mean, all right. Yeah, that's kind of, that sounds kind of crazy. Um, but Yancey made an interesting point in his book. He's like, this would be like a Muslim running throughout New York City going, I'll blow up the World Trade Center and build it again in three days, right? How do you think we as Americans would respond to that, right? I mean, not very well. We would arrest the guy, and rightly so, to be honest. So, so Jesus is met, they're making these claims about Jesus, but none of these guys can agree on, on anything. There's nothing substantive that they can hold Jesus for. And frankly, I think Caiaphas knows this. Caiaphas is the high priest at the time. Caiaphas knows that he doesn't have anything substantive to hold Jesus on. And so he begins to press in to Jesus because he knows that Jesus had made um, claims about himself and he knows he has to press Jesus to the point where Jesus will actually open his mouth and say something to, to, uh, um, uh, to indict himself. So it says this in Matthew 26, Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? <coughs> Excuse me. Are you not going to answer? What's this testimony that these men bring, are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus replied, again, I'm reading this through my lens, um, but, but I think it's helpful for us to try to, again, like I said, for us to try to be there. Um, so Jesus is bound. He's obviously been beaten up. Probably his face is swollen. He may have, have already been cut. He may have already been bleeding. They're punching him. Um, and he's, he's bound standing in front of the Sanhedrin, and they're peppering him. And he's not saying anything, right? He's just standing there. And I'm sure, um, you know, that, that there was probably a, um, both a, a deep empathy mixed with a lot of frustration about what was going on to where he's just standing there and just... Um, but not saying anything. And then... I don't know if Caiaphas got into, like physically got into his face. The text doesn't say. Um, but I know that a lot of times um, these, these mock trials were, were not, um, back in the day, didn't have the kind of order that our justice system would have in them. It's not like the judge sat back separate from the person with his gavel and was like, okay, I'm 20 feet away from you. And I'm, I'm you know, I mean, this was a probably tight quarters. People were probably pressed in on one another, and Caiaphas was probably in the middle of this, right? To where he may very well have gotten up in Jesus' face and pointed his finger at him. We don't know. It's conjecture, but maybe. And he comes and says, you tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. He's baiting him, right? And finally, finally, Jesus speaks. And and bound, and I, I don't know, but... 
Part of me is like, I guarantee you. (laughs) I don't know. But um, it seems pretty obvious to me that Jesus probably leveled his eyes directly into Caiaphas's, right? And looked looked past his eyeball into his soul, right? And, and, said, and said, yes, it is as you say. Uh, another gospel account um, says, I am. Right. And then, if that wasn't enough, Jesus continues to open his mouth. And what he's doing, guys, he's giving them the bait that they need. He's giving them what they need to, to, to charge him with a capital crime. This is what's crazy. And this is what affects all of us in this room. It affects all humanity. The kingdom is hanging in the balance. Because Jesus could have kept his mouth shut. And frankly, guys, I mean, legally, I mean, I'm sure they probably would have connived another way, but they would have, they would have had to have let him go. He had to open his mouth and help them convict him. Are you the Christ? the Son of the living God, I am. And you will see the Son of Man. Right Again, this reference to Daniel 7, the the, the judge of the universe, sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. So he doesn't just claim to be the Messiah, the Son of God. He also claims to be the judge of the entire universe. And that gets back to what I mentioned a few weeks ago where Caiaphas is the one who believes that he's the one who's, who's sitting in judgment over Jesus. But I think what Jesus is pushing back right on Caiaphas is he said, look, I am the Messiah. And in case that's not enough for you, I'm also the judge of you. So be careful how you tread. Right? And Caiaphas immediately, um, and he knows. I mean, he's, he's baiting Jesus and he knows, he, he immediately tears his clothes and, and I'm sure screams out, blasphemy, blasphemy. We don't need any more witnesses. All of you knuckleheads who, do, who didn't do what you were supposed to, get out of here. We don't need you anymore. Everybody's heard it. What do you think? And everybody said, he's worthy of death. Right? And that starts this snowball effect of now Caiaphas, even though... Um, he has legally condemned him to die under Jewish law. Now he needs the Romans in order to actually physically execute Jesus. And so he sends him to Herod Antipas, right? Um, Archelius was, I'm sorry, not Archelius. Um, um, well, it slipped my mind. <clears throat> but the Herod in Jerusalem had actually been deposed because he was stupid. So uh, the Herod who, who ruled in Nazareth, Herod Antipas, was now over, Na- was now over Galilee and uh, the Jerusalem area of Judea. And, and Herod Antipas happened to be in town that, week, that weekend. And so, um, Pi- uh, I'm sorry, Caiaphas was like, hey, um, we'll send him um, to Herod, who would have been you know, the, the person to oversee this, um, and then uh, he go, gets traded back and forth between Pilate and Herod. The whole thing is a clown show. They're just mocking him um, until finally um, uh, Pilate is, um, interviews Jesus. Um, his wife warns him. She actually wakes up and is like, hey, don't touch that dude. You know? And yet Pilate 
um, being the guy in, in his political position who was trying to keep the peace, was seeing an uprising led by the Jewish religious leaders who were saying, hey, if you don't crucify this guy, you're going to have a bigger problem on your hands, right? And so Pilate's back into a corner where he's like, okay, um, go ahead and crucify him. Which, which brings us um, to the actual um, crucifixion. So take a few minutes. Let's go until about 8.15. And uh, that gives you about eight minutes. But let's talk about the cross. Um, and, and we'll talk about the cross, and then we'll, we'll finish our time with the crucifixion. Um, but um, they're, they're con- the crosses are common. I mean, how many of y'all have on a, like a cross right now in some way, shape, or form? Raise your hand. Yeah, okay, great. Pretty, pretty good amount of you. Um, maybe 15, 20% of you do. They're common. They're commonly seen today. They're even worn as jewelry, as some of you guys are wearing right now. Um, and, and yet, I think it is an interesting question. Like, um, has, it, uh, has it ever seemed odd to you that people wear a symbol of execution? Right? Like, why not wear a, a lethal injection table around your neck? You know? Why not wear a, an electric chair or a gas chamber pendant? You know? That'd be a little weird, right? And what's interesting, too, is, um, is that the cross was not seen as any kind of like symbol of the Christian faith for a long time. In fact, C.S. Lewis even says, he's like, people didn't start using the cross as a symbol of the faith until the people who actually knew what the cross was had all died off. Right? And so, um, that, which begs the question, like, what does the cross mean? What does it mean to you? What do you think it means broader to the culture? So y'all talk about that. Take about seven, six, seven minutes, and then we'll come back and chat. All right, guys, for the sake of time, um, for the sake of time, I'll just let y'all's discussion stay at your table. Um, I'd, I'd love to interact with you about this, um, but we just don't have time. So we're going to drive on um, and talk about the actual crucifixion. I want to talk about um, three different sayings um, that Jesus made from the cross. And I'm not going to get into the whole like medical side of like, hey, you know, what is crucifixion? How did people die? The short answer is they nailed you to a tree and you suffocated to death. All right. Um, sometimes it took days for people to die. Um, crucifixion actually started, the Assyrians were the ones who first um, came up with this method of execution. And they used to nail people to the ground. Um, and the people would like, uh, they would, well... I don't want to get too graphic, but um, yeah, it, they, they would strip them naked, take their, some of their skin off, um, nail them to the ground, and the, and the sun would like basically like they would die of dehydration or it was just nasty. Um, <clears throat> then they figured out if you, if you elevated the person and nail them to a piece of wood that uh, your body's distorted in such a way that you're, by sheer exhaustion, you couldn't, you couldn't physically manipulate your body to the point where you could breathe, continue to breathe, and so you're you're basically would, um, yeah, you would suffocate. Um, that's not the way Jesus died. He was obviously crucified, but because of time, they were they were up against um, the uh, the Sabbath, and they were also up against uh, the festival, and so they they broke everybody's legs, but Jesus because he was already dead. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, he was crucified. He was crucified. Um, I want to focus on three sayings and then, and then kind of tie in um, uh, the significance of all of this. So, 
In, in two of the synoptic gospels, um, the only phrase that's, that's repeated twice, um, or the only phrase that's repeated in, in more than one gospel um, is, is this uh, phrase that Jesus says from the cross, and it's a, and it's a, it's a statement of confusion. Um, now, in, in the Psalms, um, David is the one who initially writes this phrase, and then Jesus, as the son of David, repeats this phrase on the cross. And in Aramaic, which you'll see in your Bible, it's this phrase, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, um, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? So um, here, is, um, here is the hero of, of the story. I mean, it's, it's everybody's, everybody's hopes and dreams that they've put into Jesus as the Messiah to drive out the Romans. Now, this is so upside down. This is not just Jesus washing somebody's feet. He's dying on a cross, right? This is, and, and his disciples, um, because they have no concept of what he's even talking about when he's talking about the battle for the kingdom, they've scattered. The only one that we know of that's there is John, right? I mean, they're gone, they're gone. And, and here's Jesus dying naked on a tree. The, the shame that's involved in this is palpable. I mean, um, in, in fact, I, I think historically, uh, for a lot of people who've studied this, um, most of the time, I mean, we have this concept of Jesus being crucified on this big hill. You know, he's up on the top of the hill. And, and I think we do that because it makes a great silhouette against the sunset, you know? It's like, ah, oh, the cross, you know? But historically, a lot of times, people would be crucified, like, right alongside the road, right? So you're walking along, and you're like, oh, because it was a deterrent, right? People, I mean, the Romans were like, look, if you don't conform to what we're telling you to do, you're next, <laughs> right? And, and there's something really powerful as you're, as you're walk, traveling along, the, along this road, and there's a naked man hanging on a tree dying, and all of the sounds and smells that are associated with that. It is not pleasant, right? And so it very well could have been that Golgotha, the place where they execute people, it could have been that this was right alongside a major thoroughfare into the city of Jerusalem, right? And people are watching this happen um, as Jesus is dying. And his disciples have, have, have left him and, and, then, and then deeper, as I've talked about tonight multiple times, as Jesus is looking past to what's actually going on, there's something um, really significant about the death of Jesus. And that as he's dying, he's not just forgiving the people who are nailing him to the tree, which is crazy, right? I mean, as they're nailing him to the tree, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They can't see, right? And they, they push him up, and the, the, the main post slides down into the hole and jerks his body. And he's just in agony. And yet his cry out that's repeated in Matthew and Mark is this cry of confusion. Father, where did you go? There, there seems to be what, whatever concept of himself that Jesus had in his mind, there seems to be in this moment the fact that for the first time in his, in his physical life, and may, maybe, and we would say as, as, uh, as Christians ever, the fellowship 
and the union between the Son and the Father was broken. The Father was no longer in perfect unity with the Son. Why have you forsaken me? It's a cry of confusion. But then, and, and Luke says this in his gospel, we get, a, we, get another, we get another statement from Jesus after this cry of confusion, and it's, and it's a cry of trust. Right? That Jesus says not only, um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He also comes to the point where he says, but Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Whatever's going on right now, I trust you. Again, he's not just saying these things. Um, he's, he's not just, just teaching us about the kingdom. He's doing it. If you want to talk about trust in the face of death, Jesus has been there. Not only a cry of confusion, but a cry of trust. And then ultimately, um, the last saying from the Gospel of John. John gives sayings of Jesus that are much more personal. That's where Jesus looks at the disciple he loves and says, um, and he says, son, your mother. Like he, he's, he's passing along the responsibility to care for his mother to John. Um, he, he gives, John gives another statement where Jesus says, after all this has gone down, where he's like, I'm thirsty, right? That, that this man who um, is the incarnate Son of God, right? He, he, he dies um, a, a, a martyr's death with his face smashed in, his back filleted open, his tongue swollen, and his lips parched. And he dies on a tree. And, and, and yet, John finishes um, this by telling us um, ultimately what Jesus says. And he says this, the, the Greek word is, to Tetelestai. The only reason I, I'm not trying to be like, oh, their Greek word says this, right? Um, because um, I could just tell you the English translation. It is finished, right? That's what it means. But the reason I say to Tetelestai is because the, this, this word in Greek has a sense, it has a legality to it. It's a legal term. It, it, means, that the, it means the debt that, that someone owed is paid in full. It means that the person who was guilty is not guilty anymore. That's what tetelestai means. Did y'all know that? Right? Yeah, she did. She's got it inked on her arm, right? Which I'm like, dude, if you're going to get some inked on your arm, it might as well be tetelestai, right? But Jesus, but Jesus in, this, in this epic story of what's going on, as, as we've painted that picture tonight, here's Jesus crying out and he's going, he's going, Father, where are you? There's, it's broken. But then he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then ultimately he says, it is done. It's finished. You're not guilty anymore. The debt has been paid. I paid it. Right? That is the power of what, what's happening at the cross it's finished. And what's even crazier is, um, as soon as Jesus says this, and actually, again, I think the text is really clear, he yields up his spirit. Nobody killed him. He laid his life down for you and me, right? 
And he says, right after this, the earth begins to shake. The veil in the temple that has always been a physical separation between the holiness of God and a sinful people, that veil is torn from top to bottom. It's gone. It falls to the ground. People who were dead are not dead anymore when Jesus dies. There are people who get up from their grave and they begin to walk around in Jerusalem. What? Something so significant, some, someone who was so significant that, that his death literally sh- shook the foundations of the earth. Right? In all of the dimensions, however many there are, they all shook in that moment. Right? And it's done. This is really cool, N.T. Wright again, and Jesus and the victory of God. It says this, Jesus was, he he spent his time with sinners. He was welcoming sinners. He was keeping company with the unclean. And their taint was to infect him at last. And then I, I love this. This is one of my favorite Lewis quotes. Jesus was so full of life that when he wished to die, he had to borrow death from other people. You know what killed Jesus? I did. You did. We all did. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, The Father made Him the Son who knew no sin, not to, not to take on our sin and to carry it like a backpack, you know, I got a burden. I've got this burden. I need to go die for this burden. Um, The reason that the father separated himself from the son on the cross is because his son wasn't carrying our sin. He was our sin. And he was the only one who who could become our sin and absorb it like a sponge and give to you and me the righteousness of Christ. Right? That's the great exchange is that he takes all of our sin in that moment, past, present, future, all sin for all time. And he said, it's paid for. It's done. That's why I got fired up a second ago and scared half the room, right? (laughs) I'm sorry about that. (laughs) But that's why. Like, it's done. It's finished. It's paid. Which the crazy thing about that is some of you guys in this room right now are bringing a lot of the burden of your sin into this room and that's unnecessary. Jesus paid it all. That's the gospel. The gospel is you don't have to carry that around anymore. You can let it go. It's finished. It's done. For those who are in Christ, you're a new creation. Everything old is gone. The new has come. Isaiah 53. This was written like uh, 720 years, seven, really 750 years um, before Jesus died on the cross. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent. So he did not open his mouth. Right, um, Jesus, against 
all of the temptation of the enemy to try to strip him of the kingdom of God that he came to inaugurate um, in a very unique way, which we'll talk about all next week, right? Um, that um, Jesus came and against all those temptations, against, against the whisper or the tongue of the enemy on the mouths of the religious leaders who were mocking him on the cross. Hey, come down! Um, in the greatest act of love that, that, that has and ever will take place, um, Jesus was nailed on the cross and he stayed there. Right? He stayed there for you. He stayed there for me. So as we leave tonight, I'm going to show you a little video. It's a few minutes long. And as we leave tonight, just leave, I would just ask you, like, um, even though you know how the story ends, and we'll get there next week, all right? But even though you know how the story ends, like, let that sit. Let, let the fact that God died, like, let that sit on you um, this week. Meditate about it. Pray about it. Um, let it be on your mind.